Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. The idea of reducing suffering is a pretty common one that we'll use often when discussing veganism and animal rights, and it seems pretty logical. It seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, we need to reduce the suffering of other individuals. Well, recently I came across a researcher who discusses the framework of transhumanism, which takes the idea of reducing suffering to the next level, and in some cases can actually lead to further oppression of animals. This researcher had a really interesting perspective on the issues around transhumanist approaches to animal suffering, so I thought it would be worthwhile interviewing them. And I just wanted to mention that this is the first interview I've done over Skype, and I had some technical issues on my end, so there's a little bit of a hum that you can hear when I'm speaking. I apologise for that. Here's the interview. Enjoy. My name is Michael Hauskiller. Um, I'm German but have been working in the UK, currently at the University of Exeter um, at the Department of Philosophy, but uh, soon be leaving Exeter for the University of Liverpool. Broadly, my research interests are in ethics, but uh, in a very wide sense, I'm less interested in what is right and wrong and forbidden and allowed, and, uh, but rather in what makes a good human life and, and what's, what matters in life. Can you tell us what transhumanism is and why you uh, decided to approach this topic? Um, transhumanism is a cultural and a philosophical movement. I think its main objective is to um, urge us to overcome the human condition by using technology, already existing technologies, and, and soon, hopefully, to be developed technologies in order to change what we are and thereby um, create a better life for people. How I came to work about that, I, I don't know. I, I became interested in radical human enhancement, and transhumanism is at the forefront of radical human enhancement, of, of philosophical arguments in favor of radical human enhancement. And I was just interested in the ideas behind those arguments relating to what it means to be human and what it means to be a good human. You mentioned in your first paper, Do Animals Have a Bad Life, is this idea of a hedonistic imperative. And can you just sort of explain a little bit about what the hedonistic imperative is and um, and its relationship to transhumanism? I mean, this, this is one of the... This is a title of one of the first major works in transhumanism. Uh, it's an internet manifesto, actually, by David Pierce, published, I think, in 1995 for the first time, in which Pierce argues that um, we should try to get rid of all suffering. So it's a kind of negative utilitarianism where the goal is not to maximize happiness, 
but to minimize suffering. Um, and uh, so the hedonistic imperative is an ethical imperative. It tells us what we ought to do, and what we ought to do, according to Pierce, is get rid of all suffering. And that's where animals come into the idea of that's where animals come, come into because, on um, according to the utilitarian paradigm, what matters um, in um, for moral consideration or moral considerability. Um, is that an entity, um, um, a living being, is able to suffer. So it doesn't really matter whether human or non-human. What matters um, is whether they can suffer. And if they can suffer, then that suffering, that ability to suffer and the extra suffering uh, needs to be taken into consideration. Yes also talks about uh, the suffering of animals. So if he wants to get rid of all suffering, he thinks we should also target animals as, as subjects of suffering. And so from the realms of animal protection, uh, animal suffering is, is a very common theme that's talked about. Uh, I think it's from Peter Singer, Animal Liberation. He talks about animal suffering and if they... If, it, they matter if they suffer, um, and so there's a lot of that conversation in the animal animal movement around reducing suffering. But I think that the transhumanists put a different spin on it, or from what I've seen, um, people in the effective altruism movement or the wild animal suffering movement. One thing that I've seen talked about is creating genetically modified animals that cannot suffer, that no longer have the ability to suffer. What What are your thoughts about that? Well, the idea there is that, um, I mean, if you, you want to get rid of suffering, that is, that is the first imperative. Now, if the conditions or the circumstances are such that you cannot realistically achieve that goal um, because humans are too dependent or too unwilling to abolish the institutionalized practices that cause suffering to animals, then perhaps we can get rid of suffering by creating animals that are no longer capable of suffering. For instance, we have chickens and we, we can um, keep them in the same conditions that, that uh, we do currently um, by changing them in such a way that uh, they, for instance, don't have the drive to nest anymore um, or they don't have other drives that cause the suffering um, by um, them being prevented from satisfying those urges and drives. And the ultimate goal would then be to take away the ability to suffer completely. And, and, and of course, we, we, we need to, meet, we need to um, consider whether that is really all that is relevant, the suffering, the actual suffering, or whether by doing that we're not actually destroying the animal and perhaps something that we might want to call the dignity of the animal. Absolutely. And that's what I really liked about your papers is it drew out that sort of aspect that it's not only about suffering. Life isn't only about suffering. And another aspect of the transhumanist ideas around animals is the idea of animal uplift. So rather than, say, stopping animals from being able to suffer, the alternative is to bring them up to a different level. Can you talk about animal uplift? Indeed, yeah. I mean, this is a 
core transhumanist idea for for those who are interested in animals at all. I mean, usually transhumanists are very anthropocentric. They're they're more interested in humans. But since, as I said earlier, they're by and large also utilitarians, so that all suffering should be taken into account. Some transhumanists, most notably James Hughes and George Dworsky, also try to do something about the animal condition as such. So not not just the suffering, the actual suffering and, and alleviate that suffering, but they they think that being an animal is already something that is somehow deficient and uh, that we need to do something about by um, enhancing them, radically enhancing them in such a way that um, basically they're no longer animals. So the, the assumption behind it is that animals don't really have a good life, not because they're being mistreated, uh, but because they're animals. Mm. Or they're not humans. In, in the transhumanist worldview, being human is not much better than being an animal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Because it's also a deficient state, right? We also suffer, we have to die, um, we can't control our emotions, we're relatively dumb. Um, so all this is treated, is being seen and treated as flaws of the human condition. And animals are uh, even a step further removed from the ideal. They're even more um, subject to certain contingencies that in the transhumanist view um, um, blights and and ultimately ruins their life, right? So we are better, we have it better than animals, but we're still far from actually being good enough. So we need to be, in a way, uplifted too, to oppose human status. And the animals should at least be uplifted to human status, if not uh, even further also to oppose human status. So uplifting means radical enhancement to a higher status where there's less suffering and less dependency on external conditions. And that higher status, for animals anyway, is particularly framed around the idea of humans' intelligence um, and cognitive abilities and things like that. The idea that, for instance, they cannot participate in politics is is seen as a deficiency so they cannot really take part in in a human social and political environment um, and that is seen as something that makes the life of an animal comparatively bad because there are certain goods that humans can enjoy that animals don't have any access to so that's that's the transhumanist idea of animals and where we should be trying to uplift them to. So what do you see as the inconsistencies or issues with this idea, this idea of uplift? I'm not sure there are any inconsistencies. I mean, within the, the transhumanist um, paradigm, it's completely consistent. Um, the issues I see with this is that um, it, it shows a certain contempt for the for the animal condition as such. I mean, there's already a contempt um, regarding the human condition, right? Humanity, being human, is is considered like a disease, and, and we need a therapy for that, which is enhancement. And animals are, seeing, are being seen as um, disabled or, or 
almost insane humans that have to be restored to sanity or have been uh, have to be cured and healed from the state of being merely an animal so you can see that that there's a certain contempt in this whole idea that we need to save animals from being animals this is the issue i have for that you talk about a framing of potential so it's the idea that we need to uplift the potential of animals and you have issues with that can you explain that a little bit more yeah i can try i mean one of the arguments that is being used in order to persuade us that uplifting an animal is not only a good idea but even a moral imperative is that there is a certain potential that um, animals deserve to have realized actualized and it seems to me that you cannot really talk about the potential of an animal to become something else than an animal i mean the if 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 you look at certain how should I put this, deficient states of being human. We have some certain severe disabilities. And the the usual intuition that we have is that that is something um, bad, something that ought not to be, something where we feel we should help people to uh, realize a normal um, human life. Um, and now we use the same idea with respect to animals as if they also had a potential to become something other than they are. And it seems to me that it doesn't make much sense to talk about a potential here. So um, um, a human being, a human embryo, a human child has a potential to grow into a human adult, but an animal doesn't have that potential. Unless by potential you mean um, the ability to be transformed in something completely different, like a block of marble can be turned into a statue, perhaps. But to say that the block of marble has the potential to become a statue is very different from saying that um, a human child has the potential to become a grown-up human. And it seems to me that the potential, the alleged potential of the animal to become more an animal is more like the potential of a block of mar um, marble to become a statue than the potential of a child to become an adult. It's similar to humans don't have the potential to uh, recognise the thousands of smells that a dog might recognise in their surroundings and is, is that a deficiency of humans that we need to be um, uplifted to? Why isn't that an equivalent deficiency of ours. Exactly. So the, fo the focus is very much on certain supposed deficiencies of the animal. So what they lack and what we have. But you could just as well look at it from, from the opposite direction, right? And look at the various abilities that animals do have and that we humans lack. So, um, and, and transhumanists are not talking about uplifting humans to animal status. So the very term uplifting already suggests that there are higher status, higher states of being and lower states of being, and that the animals, non-human animals, that is, are on a lower state of being than humans. It's completely arbitrary because you pick out certain properties that you think are 
um, objectively valuable, such as a certain um, type of intellectual activity, a certain type, type of abstract thinking, and then say this is what everyone, every creature, every living being should have. You mentioned that in terms of objective goods and animals, so that animals are evolved to have the potential to live a good life within the niche that they've evolved for. So humans have a, a potential to have social and cognitive capacities that might be um, higher in certain regards to certain animals, but animals have certain capacities that make their lives goods within their situation. Yes, exactly. The, the question is, in what way would an animal, animal's life not be as good as a human life? And I'm talking about the animal life as an animal life. So again, not because it's being treated in a certain way, just because it's an animal. So in what way would the animal life be deficient compared to human life? Um, and uh, there are various theories of what makes a life good that you can apply here. One would be hedonism. So it's the amount of pleasure that um, an, an entity, a being, is able um, to to feel. And in that respect, I don't see any reason why an animal's life should be worse than a human life, because animals can um, enjoy as much pleasure as a human can from, from their abilities. Um, or you could say what makes a life good is that your desires and, and needs are being fulfilled and met. But again, there's no reason why an animal's desires should not be met in the same way and to the same extent as a human as human desires can be met. And the third option would be a kind of objective good theory of well-being where you say, well, there are certain things in the world which, if you have access to them, that makes your life good. And if you don't have access to them uh, or or only limited access to them, or only access to a few of them, then your life is worse. So the assumption seems to be that there are objective goods that human, humans have access to and animals don't. Um, but again, the, the objective goods that are being picked by transhumanists as objective goods um, are, very, are very much picked from a, from a humanist, from an anthropocentric point of view. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so if an, animal, if, if an animal had to pick objective goods, those objective goods might look very different from the ones that we, being humans, would pick. And that is because it seems to me that even though some goods might be objective, they're still relative to the kind of being that we are. So perhaps there are certain things that make human lives good. Um, and for a human, those, uh, those things would be objective goods. But that doesn't mean that they're objective goods for everyone. So animals might have different objective goods. It doesn't make them less objective. It just makes them species-specific. So it's a species-specific approach and understanding or recognising the diversity of goods that animals can have. So taking it from the animal perspective um, rather than the human perspective. Yes, the assumption, the transhumanist assumption is that if an animal 
could choose what they want to be, they would definitely want to be a human. And I don't think that's true, if, if the, the whole idea makes sense in the first place. But And that idea, I think, creates a problematic premise that we need to go and... Uh, in quotes, save animals from being animals. And it really smacks of um, human superiority. It's almost like a, a white saviour or a colonialist approach. You know, we know better than the animals know, so we need to go in and, and show them what's right and, and change them for the better. Precisely. That, that's exactly it. They cannot choose and they don't even know uh, how bad their lives are. So even if we could ask them, um, and they said in their ignorance, uh, no, I don't want to be changed, we actually know better because we already have access to those goods that uh, they have no understanding of. So we need to uplift them before they can even appreciate the, uh, the goodness of the goods that we enjoy. <laughs> um, which just emphasizes your, your point, namely that um, it is the assumption of inherent superiority of the human over the animal that is being um, used here. Mm. Yeah, I like your word, dignity, um, giving dignity back to animals and, and recognising their worth or value within themselves is probably a, an important thing to take into account when, when thinking about these things. Absolutely. So there was one really good quote that I think summed this up from your papers. It goes like this. It is not compassion, but pity that is being shown here of the kind that we would resent if expressed towards us, because it always involves condescension, the presumption of superiority. I think that really sums up um, what we've just mm -hmm. discussed around the idea of the, the way that transhumanists and particularly around the idea of animal uplift uh, frame animals as inferior or uh, in, a, in a disabled state. Yeah, I agree. One last question before we part ways. I just wanted to ask, do you have a dog or do you live with a dog, share your, share your um, life with a dog? And do you mind sharing a little about them if you do? I ask because there was some mentions of dogs within your, within your papers and the second paper um, has post-dog in the title. Do you live with a dog? Yeah, I have a cat and a dog, and they are both uh, uh, a great inspiration for my work. Fantastic. Yeah, I do. I actually frequently talk about them in my my work. Yeah, great. It did come through. I, I felt that some of your thoughts were um, maybe informed by your relationship with your dogs you were mentioning. You think that your dog would be happy being a right. dog. Many ways, in many ways, I think my, my dog is much superior to myself. So. <laughs> now we'll move on to the second interview for today. A fundamental premise of science is that it is unbiased or conducted from a position of non-bias. But that's not always the case. It's not always true. And the next person that we'll be speaking to has researched how our prejudice towards animals impacts the study of animal minds. I'm Ashley Kiefner, technically now I guess Dr. Ashley Kiefner, though I'm still breaking that title in a little yeah. bit. And uh, I have gone from, just finished my PhD in the summer and graduate diploma. So I did my PhD in philosophy and graduate diploma in cognitive science. 
at the University of Waterloo in Canada, finished that in August, and jumped straight into a Master's of Business, Entrepreneurship, and Technology. So I haven't touched this research since August, which is why I might be a little bit fuzzy, and uh, I'm sort of hoping it comes back to me, like riding a bike. So just to start off with, why did you, or have you, done research into animal minds. What was it that drew you to that um, area of research? I've noticed that you've also uh, done research on birds and theory of mind in birds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've always had a passion for animals. I sort of grew up surrounded by animals and so have always been interested in them and love them. And I started in my undergrad, just did, I did a joint degree in physics and philosophy, and so got into the philosophy aspect, and there got introduced to philosophy of mind. And in doing the philosophy of mind, I sort of got a little bit of a taste for mental state attribution and got to working on cases, um, dealing with individuals like autism spectrum disorder, psychopathy individuals, and the sort of more unique human cases. And I thought, that's interesting. And then as I got thinking about the unique human cases, I thought, well, what about animal cases? Can you just expand a little bit more on what is an animal mind? And what do we currently think we know about animal minds? Yeah. So put simply, an animal mind, in my understanding, is just a mind of an animal. So if you belong to the animal kingdom and you have a mind, I think you have an animal mind. And so I know that sounds very basic and perhaps circular, but I'm just sort of going by the um, sort of phylogenic definition. If you're in the animal kingdom, you have a mind, you're an animal. And so one thing that's important to be clear on is that I'm not actually trying to draw conclusions about the nature of animal minds insofar as what they're actually capable of, right? Because that's actually the work of, you know, evolutionary ethologists, psychologists, neuroscientists, etc. Instead, what I'm trying to do is um, ensure that the positions from which these scientists are conducting their studies and drawing their conclusions are um, ones that are going to be fair and sort of free from, as free from bias as possible. So, you know, I think that basically a mind, in terms of what a mind is, um, I sort of borrow from Paul Fagard, Dr. Paul Fagard, who was my supervisor, and I, I tend to shy away from really strict definitions of mind, especially for really big, important concepts like this, just because I think that's exactly where we get into trouble when we try and put such big concepts like what a mind is into a really strict definition. That's when we do things like, say, only humans can have minds or only humans can have emotion, only humans can do this. Um, so what Paul does is when he describes a mind or he outlines what a mind is, he does what he calls a three analysis and he basically provides exemplars. Um, so examples of what minds are, he lists typical features of what minds are and explanations, both of what minds can do and, um, how minds can be explained. And that's his way of outlining a bigger sort of grand concept like minds. And then for animal minds, it's just a more broad sort of category. So an animal mind is just simply a mind that belongs to an animal for me. And then in terms of what we think we know about animal minds, I think it's a heck of a lot more than we actually probably know about animal minds. I think that's one of the sort of common pitfalls of humans is that we like to think we know a whole lot more than we actually know. And so, you know, the the attraction is to think that we probably have a pretty good handle on what animals, what animal minds might be capable of. But I think the 
best thing we can do is actually realize how much we don't know and mm-hmm. sort of just be aware of that in making our conclusions that there's actually a whole lot that we don't understand and a whole lot that we have yet to figure out. And there's a whole lot that we won't be able to figure out just, you know, through no fault of our own because we don't have the tools or we don't have the science or we're not in a position to know what it's going to be like to experience thing from the experience something from the perspective of, you know, an animal with a physiology that is so different from our own. And so I don't think we know anywhere near as much as, we think we know or we would like to know. Um, so a, a large premise, well, the premise of your of your um, thesis, which is called How mm-hmm. Prejudice Affects the Study of Animal Minds, is animal prejudice. Can you tell us what yes. animal prejudice is? Yes. So animal prejudice simply refers to the bias that humans can have in favour of their own species and against other species. And this can be to varying degrees both toward different species and toward different individuals within that species. And so people who are familiar with the term speciesism will think this sounds very familiar to speciesism, Mm -hmm. and that's because it is. And that's fine. Um, So the only reason why I avoided the term speciesism in my thesis is because in the philosophical literature, the term speciesism, which was popularized by Peter Singer, carries with it or can carry with it um, some assumptions surrounding animal rights. And because in my thesis, I wanted to avoid discussions of animal rights just because I wanted to keep the focus on the prejudice and the effect that it had on the scientific study, I opted to use what I thought would be a more neutral sort of phrasing of just animal prejudice. Mm -hmm. So it's simply the bias that humans can have in favor of their own species over others. But yes, essentially, if you're just looking at it in terms of bias, speciesism, it's a very similar sort of thing, just without the sort of um, tied in assumptions or any sort of assumptions toward any further sort of discussions of animal rights. Yeah. And you particularly focus on the effect that animal prejudice has on the study of animal minds or the scientific um, approach. And mm-hmm. it was interesting to me, a couple of quotes that you pointed out, Descartes, which is, you know, <laughs> he's, he's like the, the mm-hmm. father of denying animals any sort of mind or autonomy. And also Davidson. And what was striking about the two points you make is that they both base their thinking around or denial of animal minds on a lack of language. And it just seemed Mm -hmm. like that it shows a supreme lack of creativity from a scientific standpoint to think that language is the sole indicator of what um, a mind is and how science has been captured by that almost for a very long time, at least um, Descartes particularly. Uh, so what is what is the impact of animal prejudice on practice of science, in particular the yeah. um, study of animal minds? Yeah. So in my thesis, I argue that animal prejudice leads to problems at three different stages of studying animal minds. And so first, I say that animal prejudice has an impact when designing experiments. So researchers, which are humans, tend to have difficulty or can have difficulty generating new informative paradigms for animals who are unlike us. And this is just simply due to the fact that sometimes animals are going to have physiologies and motivations that are very much unlike ours. And so similar, similarly, um, we're going to have a bias toward paradigms that favor human physiology and motivations. And so this is not necessarily through any fault of our own. It's just sort of how we are. We are humans. And so, um, you know, we're built a certain way. We have certain motivations and it's really hard to imagine what it's like to be 
of a different physiology or have, you know, um, very different motivations from the ones we already have. And so this is something, I don't know if you're familiar with Thomas Nagel's What It's Like to Be a Bat. No, I'm it's not. A, oh, it's, um, it's one of those sort of really famous papers in philosophy. It's a good read. So Thomas Nagel's What It's Like to Be a Bat, um, it's, uh, a, a famous paper in philosophy and basically Nagel just argues that, you know, at the end of the day, humans aren't going to know what it's like to be a bat because at best, all they're going to know is what it's like to be a human knowing what it's like to be a bat yeah. because you can't shake, <laughs> you can't shake what it's like to be a human. And so it's kind of the same argument here. Um, you know, despite our best efforts and, you know, using whatever knowledge we already have, we're still humans. And so, I mean, there are things we can do to compensate for this and to try and sort of make a best effort, but we are humans. And so there's a difficulty that comes with that and a sort of bias we're going to have towards favoring certain experiments. So it's something that we need to be aware of. The second stage, I think, where um, animal prejudice can have an impact for studying the minds of animals is when selecting test subjects. So the pool of potential test subjects can be unjustifiably shallow sometimes. And I think that the same kinds of animal subjects tend to be the ones who get studied over and over again. And there are other animal subjects that tend to remain understudied. And so the same sort of, you know, we tend to have these sort of animal all-star test subjects the great, um, you know, the great apes and the dolphins and elephants and mm. sort of these species, animals that we know are, you know, the smart animals. And um, for obvious reasons, I mean, they're and it's not that we shouldn't learn more about them. It's not that, you know, I think we should want to study them any less. They're cool animals. And by all means, we should learn more about them and, you know, want to learn about them. But there are other animals who we're not studying. And I think we should, um, you know, maybe make a greater effort to learn more about. And then the final stage, I think, where animal prejudice can have an impact for the scientific study of animal minds is when interpreting results. So null results can be overinterpreted. Uh, type 2 errors can be unjustifiably favored over type 1 errors. Differences between individuals you, sorry, can be ignored. Could you just um, describe yep. what type 1 and type 2 errors are for listeners? They might not, not uh, know. Yeah, okay. Um, so, yeah, so a type 2 error is a false negative. So denying a cognitive ability to an animal when, in fact, the animal does possess that cognitive ability. And a type 1 error is a false positive. So you attribute a cognitive ability to an animal when, in fact, the animal does not possess a cognitive ability. So one another thing that struck me when I was reading reading the um, when you really highlight these three different stages of design, mm -hmm. um, selecting test subjects and interpreting results. Um, another impact, I think, our our prejudice towards animal minds in the first instance when we were maybe establishing the fields of cognitive psychology, uh, or cognitive um, yeah psychology and cognitive. Um, study of animal minds basically um is that we didn't put a lot of emphasis on animals having minds so we would create very sterile environments or experimental situations mm -hmm. so you think of the rat in a a glass tub or a plastic tub that's 30 yeah. centimeters by 30 centimeters that must for an, for an individual that has a mind and has cognitive abilities emotions um, desires that must or possibly has an impact on that mind and could have um, impacts on the mental well-being of those animals in the lab experiment and therefore influence the results of our experimentation as well. 
Absolutely. This is something that um, I talked about with Dr. Andrew Fenton out of Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. He was on my thesis committee, and he's written recently about descent in chimpanzee subject studies and the importance that descent has and should have in animal studies. Because when we study human subjects, we always give them the like the opportunity to descent, right? And that's for obvious reasons. It's because they might have, um, you know, there might be things that are making them uncomfortable with the experiment and so we want to give them the option to dissent from the study and not participate and so with animals it makes sense that we would want to give them the same option if we're going to you know have this assumption or make the attribution of a mind to them and then you know in the same in the same stroke even if it's not you know if if things like a sterile environment or cognitive deprivation or sort Mm -hmm. of um lack of stimulus, if that's something that's affecting them, even if it's something, you know, that they may not be aware of, it can absolutely affect their cognitive functioning and cognitive well-being. And if the whole point is to figure out what an animal is capable of and what they're cognitively able to do, if we're putting them in an environment that is going to compromise their cognitive abilities, it's sort of I mean, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it defeats the purpose of the whole study because we might be gaining some insight, like the effect of a sterile environment on the cognitive functioning. Um, This is similar to Morris water maze and how when you put a rat in a Morris water maze, which is the big sort of, um, you know, tub of water with a submerged Mm. platform and you put this rat in this pool of water and the idea is that the rat is supposed to over time have learned where the maze or where the platform is in the maze so that the platform which is originally raised above the water is eventually submerged and over time it's learned so that it can find the maze and you're trying to track how quickly it finds the maze over time and you're gaining some insight into how fast it learns or something spatial awareness um spatial memory and uh the Other scholars have have written about the effects of stress and what this has on sort of cognitive functioning. And they've said that, you know, look, like we have all this evidence that stress negatively impacts cognitive performance. And so why are we using this as an experimental paradigm to test for cognitive performance when stress is a huge factor and we know that stress is going to, um, you know, negatively affect our results? and The conclusion, I guess, in terms of like what results you get from Morris Water Maze studies is not that you get, I guess, irrelevant data. It's just that the data you get is not sort of the optimal performance of a rat in terms of like its spatial memory. It's a rat's performance in terms of spatial memory when it's under stress or something. And so sterile environments and things like that will definitely impact uh things like the you know whatever cognitive capacity we're trying to test for and so it's something we should be aware of and um absolutely i've always had that niggling in the back of my mind when i see research coming out with those sorts of experimental procedures what are we really getting from this and how is that impacting our understanding of animal minds um based on the biased experimental conditions that they're coming from so what are the implications? So you've you've given a really good overview of um, of animal prejudice and its influence on on science. What are the implications of animal prejudice for the practice 
of science, particularly animal minds, and the knowledge that science produces? Yeah, so I think um, I think in terms of the knowledge that it's producing, basically animal prejudice has two main effects on the knowledge um, that we're producing, and that's two main episodic concerns are arising um, from the problems that animal prejudice is creating, and that's first, current methodological practices in the study of animal minds are increasing the likelihood that empirically inaccurate results are going to be generated. And then second, current methodological practices have resulted in and are sustaining gaps in our knowledge of animal minds. And so these problems, I think, conflict with what are commonly agreed on values in science. And so I think it's not um, controversial or it's it shouldn't be largely controversial anyway um, to say that they need to be addressed because they seem to um, go against the values or the goals that science has. Mm, you do tease that out a lot in the thesis. So if people are interested in those scientific values and how prejudice towards animals affects these scientific values, I, I suggest that they go and, and look at the thesis in, in more detail. So thank you very much for taking the time to, to chat with us today. I've really appreciated and really enjoyed the conversation. I think you're adding a very important contribution to the way we think about animals in scientific method and research, particularly in the study of animal minds. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm always happy to talk about animals. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.